From the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, starting with verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into mar- in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word of the Lord. From Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who who correctly handles the word of truth. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 17, starting with verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We are in ordinary time, and today I want to talk a little bit about our um, about this idea of place that is so significant throughout the scriptural text. Um, so much of scripture is about how do we engage with the particular place that we're in, and one of the major themes that we see throughout the scriptural story is this theme of exile: people who are taken from one place. And then they find themselves in another place, a place that's not their own, a place that God has not given them, a place that is foreign and a place that is pagan. Um, 
So we see in the Old Testament that the Jews were in exile a few different times. Excuse me, I'll move my doll here really quick out of the way. (laughs) Only a few of you will get the vanity cloth reference, but that's okay. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Jewish people are in exile, and they're in exile in several places. So the big exile that we see in the Old Testament is exile in Babylon. But as they progress, they're not only in exile in Babylon, they're in exile then in Persia and in Greece and then in Rome. And then in the New Testament, most of the New Testament, well, all of the New Testament is the backdrop of the the early Christians in exile to the Roman Empire. So they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So the whole Bible, you can read through this lens of a people in a foreign land. And people have been given this land. Yes, there are parts of the Old Testament where they're actually in the land, but a people in a foreign land who, or a people from a land who are in a foreign land. And they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be God's people in this new place, in this place that is hostile and this place that is strange. So if you think of yourself as the Jewish people in exile, which is where our Jeremiah passage comes from, or you think of yourself as the early church in, under the oppression of Rome, which is where our Timothy text comes from today, you can think none of that would feel too comfortable. You're God's people and you're in a strange place. And yet, notice, none of the commands in scripture towards people in a foreign place are that they just need to buck up and win the culture for Christ. That's never the command, okay? It's never that they're told to accumulate power, particularly political power. They're never told, well, if you just get enough of a coalition together, (laughs) then you can really be the powerful ones in this culture. No. Instead, what they're commanded to do over and over again is to go about living their lives faithfully, to be God's people, to live their lives faithfully, their ordinary lives, seeking the good of those around them. That in and of itself will be counter-empire and counter-cultural. They are called to acknowledge that God is at work even when they can't see it. That's what they're called to do. Now, you might be familiar with Jeremiah chapter 29. We read part of that this morning. But one of the verses in our culture that we like to quote a lot is verse 11. So you may have heard Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Okay, a few of us have heard that. This sounds like a very American verse, doesn't it? Think about it. God wants us to prosper. That's what we think of. We like this. I like to hear this idea that God wants to prosper me and not to harm me. Maybe if I just say that verse over and over again and no other verses, (laughs) then maybe that'll help me feel good about this culture that I live in and who I am. Now, I love this verse, okay? But the context of this verse is important. The children of Israel are told this while they're in exile in a foreign land. And this is verse 11. Remember, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Verse 10 says this. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not to prosper you or to prosper you, not to harm you. When 70 years are over, So the context of this verse is, yes, I will always be good. My plans for you are always good, and yet you're going to be in Babylon for the next 70 years. Ouch. That takes some of the American out of that verse for me, right? Sorry, I'm not 
saying American in a negative sense, but it takes some of that prosperity element that we love so much in our culture out of it. God tells his people he will rescue them in 70 years. But before that, what we read today, before that, he tells them, this is how you're to live in the meantime. This is how you're to live while you're in exile, while you're not prospering right now. This is how you're to live. And here's what he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, so you too will prosper. So they're in a strange land They can't, the Psalms tell us that while they're in a strange land, they can't even seem to muster their songs. They can't even sing the songs of the place that God has given them as a land because it feels so foreign. It doesn't even feel right. They're in this strange land. They're trying to figure out who we are. And in this space, this strange land, this foreign place where they're not prospering, where they're in exile, God says they're not to fight back against the culture. They're to do the ordinary faithful things of life. Let your kids get married, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what those things produce and then seek the peace of the city you're in. Seek the peace, imagine this, of the foreign pagan city you're in. Seek the peace of that place and pray for that city. In many ways, this is the call of the faithful Christian. Do the ordinary faithful stuff of life Keep going, keep being faithful, keep praying for the good of the space where God has placed you. That's your calling. The children of Israel are challenged to recognize God was not just in our place, our home, the land that he gave us. He wasn't just there, but he's in every place. He's among all people. And that means he's at work with you now, even when you don't see him. God will show his faithfulness to them, even in and through them in a foreign land. Now, we have a disadvantage, those of us in this room, when it comes to um, interpreting this passage. Why? Well, white American Christians are at a disadvantage when we read the scriptures. Why? White American Christians are not in exile in the United States. We have not known what exile looks like. In fact, really since the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 300s, who if you you look back on Roman history, he converted to Christianity in the 300s and became the first emperor to convert to Christianity. And all of a sudden, Rome went from this uh, emperor-worshipping religion to now a Christian empire. And that happened in the 300s AD under Constantine. Ever since then, Christianity has been the dominant force in the whole Western world. By by that, I mean um, Europe and America. And this creates such a disconnect for many people in our culture that sometimes we look at the scriptures as Westerners, as white American Christians, and we look at the scriptures and we go, okay, it seems like God's people are supposed to be under persecution, but I'm not under persecution. So we kind of create persecution for ourselves. (laughs) Okay, has anybody seen anything like this? No? Okay. So we kind of get this persecution complex because we go, I'm supposed to be persecuted. I'm not being persecuted. So we create that. And this may be why Christians ridiculously get in a huff 
when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. We create this persecution. We're still the dominant religion. We're still the, you know, all these things, but we create this sense of persecution. Or when Starbucks doesn't seem to fully acknowledge Christmas on their cups. It's quite funny we don't address the fact that consumerism itself pushes against the true meaning of Christmas. So going to, going to large retail stores in and of itself kind of pushes against the meaning, right? So we get upset about the cups not, okay, I'm gonna stop. Or when we don't say enough public pr- prayers at public events, we get in a huff about these things. So we develop a persecution complex because somehow we know Authentic Christianity and persecution always seem to go together. Authentic Christianity and um, living counterculturally and and living at odds with the culture seem to go together, and yet, so what do we do now? Today, I want to suggest that we inhabit a kind of cultural Christianity where we are. Much of it looks nothing like the way of Jesus. Jesus. We become complacent. We blend our American patriotism with our faith, and then we throw in consumerism, and that becomes Christianity for us. In a sense, the American dream has become the religion of this place, of our place. The average American Christian is just trying to be more successful, bigger, faster, stronger, and then we want to influence and dominate the culture. And so a bunch of us have been doing this for generations now, right? And then we still want to claim that as Christianity. So it's an odd blending of things. And there's nothing new with this, right? So all throughout the Old Testament, God's people constantly, especially when they would get in a place of comfort, they would begin to syncretize. So they'd begin to mix pagan worship with the worship of Yahweh. They'd put it all together. It wasn't just that overnight they would go, I don't want to worship Yahweh anymore. I want to worship this other God. No, what they would do is they would begin to kind of blend it together They'd bring the idols into the city to stand alongside the temple in Israel, and they would kind of blend that together. We call that syncretism. We see that all throughout the scriptures that God's people would do that. So I think we live in a culture of syncretism. And the result is that American Christianity now looks a lot more like Babylon than like Israel. The empire now claims the title Christian. Most of us in this room are inherently more privileged in a culture like this, okay? And perhaps it's better when we read this passage of Jeremiah 29, build houses, settle down. Here's what you're to do in this space, that we don't think of it first with ourselves in mind. That's what we usually do. We read and we go, we're Israel in this passage. Not first with ourselves in mind, but with, for example, the church in China that's persecuted today immigrant Christian communities in our world, in our midst today. Black Christians seeking to live the gospel faithfully even as they find themselves on the underside of power over and over again. In fact, recent studies show us that the black church in the United States tends to be more orthodox Christian in beliefs and in practice than the white church in the United States. If you look at most people in the black church are more orthodox in their belief, they're more orthodox in their regular practices of the Christian faith than white Christians are today. And this perhaps is because of the majority culture's tendency, there's always a tendency in a majority culture towards syncretism, towards getting complacent, towards blending our faith with other things. 
Minority Christians can teach us about a sense of foreignness. What does it mean to be part of this place, to live as faithful Christians in this place? They can teach us about exile. This passage reminds us that our welfare is always tied together with others. That God is at work in the lives of others just as he is at work in our lives. The way of the people of God is always to care for the other, not just oneself. And when we care for the other, it is inherently good for us. And that seems to be a principle at the core of the kingdom of God. That as we give outwards, as we're loving, as we're caring, that there is something that happens in us that's transformative for our good in some way. Uh, This is a side note, but one of the things I always admired about the church in Tulsa that sent us is before I was there, they used to have a lot of staff members come in and be associate pastors at their church, and they would be trained there, or they'd be worship leaders or whatever. And then when they felt called to go elsewhere, this church was always so sending and blessing. We were an example of that, that they would go, go, and we're going to support you and help you and encourage you. And they would always hold people loosely and they would send them when they'd leave. And then I'd always go, there was one period of time where we left, the youth pastor left, and the worship leader left all within a span of just a few months, all for positive reasons. And they all went all over the country. And I remember going, oh, this is going to be really hard for this church because all of us are leaving. It's a little prideful there, but (laughs) all of us are leaving. This is going to be really hard for this church. And then what I found is that in that moment, God blessed them in significant ways because of the fact that they were open-handed and they were sending. So that's just one small example, but but there is this sense of when we're open-handed with others, when we're loving and caring towards others, God does something transformative in our lives. And of course, this is where our cultural situation is important. Reading this today, we can say that if we find Christianity losing influence, and it is losing influence in our culture, We're not to grasp a hold of it, but to continue to simply live faithfully in our lives. But this passage has also been used abusively, and I want to talk about this for a minute. It's important. American slaves were often given this verse as they were told, see, you're not supposed to fight back against the culture. You're supposed to simply just live your ordinary lives and seek the welfare of your slave owners. That's what they were told. That is not the right way to read this text, okay? So how do we reconcile that, though? What do we do there? Well, notice, Israel is never told to surrender their humanity to the empire, okay? In fact, they are told this radically subversive thing. They are to do the most human thing that they can do in that situation, to continue to marry to plant gardens, to establish generations, to build houses. They are to say, no, we are human too in this moment and in this place. The oppressed are never called to just sit in their oppression, okay? Love for others and love for self always goes together, okay? So to allow oneself, I can also picture someone who's been in an abusive relationship, using this verse to say, I'm not supposed to get out of that abusive relationship. I'm simply supposed to just kind of be faithful and go through this. No, that's not the right way to read this. To allow oneself to continually continue to be abused is not true love for self or for the other. It's not. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are to love ourselves. 
The welfare of us and others is tied together. We can't have one without the other. In the same way, the abused are not called to stay in their oppression. They are called to assert their own humanity, as this verse tells us. So we are to fight for civil rights. The oppressed are called to continue to remind their oppressors, we are human. We stand here as human beings. And doing so is a catalyst for the healing for the oppressed and the oppressor. So for example, the American civil rights movement was always rooted in love. Notice as we study that movement that it always had a Christian center, which is powerful. But it was always rooted in love, often tough love. And what that movement did is it reminded us that our welfare is tied up together. As long as some of us are not free, none of us will truly be free. Okay. So we are called to be faithful. Faithful to who God is, faithful to Jesus, the one who is always looking out for the other. And this is more than just realism, okay? This isn't just saying, get used to it, you're gonna be here a while, just settle in and don't worry about it. Don't worry about your circumstance. Walter Brueggemann says this, the imperative or this command bestows upon this vulnerable, small community a large missional responsibility. In this way, the community is invited into the larger public process of the empire. So basically what he's saying here is like Israel, by being told that they're to pray for the culture, that they're to build houses and settle down, that they're to keep their generations going, they're being invited into the larger conversation of the Babylonian empire. He continues, such a horizon prevents the exilic community from widowing into its own safe sectarian existence and gives it work to do and responsibility for the larger community. Faithfulness to God will itself subvert the empire around us. This passage is not about appeasement with the empire, okay? It is a call to continue to live humanly, continue to live how God has called you to live, no matter what your circumstance, to continue to live as God's people, to continue to look out for everyone around you, something that the empire will always try to squash in you. And yes, that means standing for justice. It means always promoting faith, hope, and love. So what is our calling as those who find ourselves in places of power? What does that look like? It's to live in ways that are counter-empire, even if the empire benefits us. In this world, to truly live as a Christian, so if you are self-giving, patient, if you live a quiet, faithful life, if you run to the margins and join the people who are marginalized, if you look out for the rest of the world rather than yourself, all that is countercultural in our world. I don't think any of us would argue that. It can truly begin to be like we're living in a foreign land. It's gonna feel in your life like you're pushing against stream because the stream says, do what's best for you. <laughs> Go after number one, right? Living for Christ will always create a sense of foreignness to the world around us even if it's a world that claims to be Christian. Now that makes sense if you think about the life of Jesus. Like Jesus's life was one of constant oppression, right? 
Like his journey to the cross is like all of his public ministry is walking to the cross and teaching and healing while he walks to the cross. He's oppressed and he's marginalized and ultimately he dies. But truly living for Christ will always place us in a position where it doesn't fit right with the powers that be in our world. It just doesn't. And you'll find that everywhere around the world. I'm not just talking about in America, but in every context, the people that are in power, Christianity is always kind of nudging and subverting that place of power. And all of this is grace. The Israelites are told that there is grace for them in Babylon. And by praying for the Babylonians, there is grace for the Babylonians for those pagans who rule over them. God is somehow miraculously at work with and amongst even those in Babylon. All right, so what does that look like? (laughs) It might be easy to say, join people on the margins, be self-giving, but what does that mean? Well, I think it means from day to day that our antenna as Christians are always on the lookout for those who are on the underside of power for those who are on the margins, that we are always divesting, that we are always seeking the best for the other and not just for ourselves. Yes, that's true in everyday conversations, that when somebody walks in a room, my my pastor always talks about the difference between the being a here I am person and a there you are person. (laughs) That when somebody walks in the room, you know, there's some people that they go, kind of with their body language, here I am, right? (laughs) Like I'm here, see me, look at me. And then there's others that are, there you are person. How are you today? How are things going for you, right? So that has practical implications. It has practical implications on a larger scale at your job. Who are the people that are on the underside of power here? Of course, this always means giving freely, not out of coercion or codependency, all right? There is a difference between being a person that's a doormat, just lets people walk over them. That's not the self-giving love of God, okay? Again, the self-giving love of God asserts humanity and freely gives out of that humanity. It also means we are quick to listen and slow to speak. We move more towards quiet lives of faithfulness than towards things that just appear successful or things that might create a quick fix. Do you know the most radical, subversive thing that you can do in the shadow of an empire is everyday acts of faith, hope, and love. That is the most subversive thing we can possibly do. When we live acts of faith, hope, and love, it turns the world upside down. So what do we do in this place? Well, our Timothy text is simple. It tells us, remember Jesus. We do all of this stuff that I talked about because of who God is. If you think about Jesus' life, he spent the first 30 years of his life in hiddenness. We don't know very much at all. We get a couple stories in the the, uh, scriptures about him as a baby. And then he's like, there's one story about him when he's 12 years old. And there's really nothing else for 30 years. And then he has three years of public ministry. Only three years, okay? Now, we would look at that practically through our kind of empire lens, and we would go, man, Jesus could have had so much more impact if he just would have lived a little bit longer, right? If he could have had an international ministry and not just a local Palestinian ministry, man, he could have been powerful. 
So Jesus has three years of public ministry, and then it ends in what to the world looks like a waste. Man, what a talented guy. And then he dies. What's going on here? Of course, on the other side of that, we know that there's something way deeper than that. Jesus gained some notoriety during his time, but it was as a troublemaker. He's constantly threatened and ultimately killed. We know that this waste at Calvary is what changed the world. In 2 Timothy, Paul, at the end of what we think is his last letter, says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. And we can read that and go, yeah, good idea, right? Remember Jesus Christ, always a good idea. But we, we do need to remember that we always take our cues from him. The way that we live, it, how does this look like the gospel? How does this look like Jesus and how he lived and how he died? And you can tell that Paul is challenging some assumptions here because he says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And he says, that's the gospel, that's it. Why is all that important? Well, first of all, remember Jesus Christ, that we don't just believe in resurrection as a general concept, okay? We don't just believe in the story of Israel as a historical, a great historical idea, but there's something specific about this guy, Jesus that we have to remember and be anchored in. But we also remember resurrection, that Jesus wasn't just a good example. We don't just look to him for his ethical teachings. I think his death and his ethical teachings are tied together, but it's not just his ethical teachings. The resurrection is the hinge point of history, of all of history. Everything changes in light of the resurrection. And then finally, we need to remember he's a descendant of David. This is one of those that doesn't maybe feel as natural to us. We might go, yeah, I should remember Jesus, check. I should remember the resurrection, but why do I really need to remember he was a descendant of David? Because it shows us God's story is consistent. God didn't give up on his people Israel. If we served a God that all of a sudden said, all right, Israel, you're done. You know, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm giving up on you. I'm gonna go find this other guy who's gonna take on my mission. Then no, that wouldn't be consistency in God's character. Jesus is part of the story of Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel's story as the one true and faithful Jew. God remains faithful. In Jesus Christ, the world is new. And in Christ, we can recognize he's at work everywhere. So he's at work even in the most unlikely places. In Babylon, under persecution, in Paul's case, in a prison cell, he is at work there and he calls us to faithfulness there, wherever that is. No matter how messed up your life feels like right now or how boring your life feels like right now, God calls you to faithfulness in that place and he says, I'm working in that place. I'm already working. Paul says that Jesus is the whole point of why he suffered, why he's been chained like a criminal. He's writing this from prison. And here's what Paul says, even though I'm chained, the word of God is not chained. The gospel can't be tied up. The gospel can't be limited. God is at work even when it looks like I have no influence, I have no value to the wider world, the word of God is still active. And here Paul quotes what we think might be a hymn at this time. He says this, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. That one, we kind of go, ooh, ouch. But then he follows it up with this. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
I love that line, if we're faithful, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. God is consistent even when we mess up. He cannot disown himself. What does that mean? Well, it means his character is true and he can't disown his character. He can't go against his character. But also by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is called the body of Christ. That's not just a nice metaphor that we use of a human body and it's a great illustration. It's like somehow we are Christ walking around. (laughs) And so if we are Christ walking around, he can't disown his own body. He can't disown us. God is faithful even when we are faithless. It was a few weeks after Lucy was born and I was sitting around awaiting the hospital bill. And I knew it was gonna be huge. It was the first child we'd ever had. We didn't know how this worked. We didn't have great insurance. We knew that this would be a pretty massive hospital bill. And so we're checking the the mail every day. And then finally it had been long enough, it had been a few weeks to where I knew that Um, I want to go find out what this bill is, and I want to figure out how it's taken care of. Those of you know that, uh, many of you know that Lucy's adopted, and so we didn't want the bill going to the birth mom accidentally instead of to us, and so I wanted to take care of this as quickly as I could. So I went into the hospital, into the billing department, and um, sat down and said, I just want to get ahead of this. I want to find out what this bill is. I want to get on the payment plan, because I know I can't pay pay it off all now. And so I sat down and they had a hard time finding me in the system because Lucy didn't have our name yet and they couldn't give me all of the birth mom's information because they hit the laws and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sitting there trying to kind of figure out and they finally find us in the system and they look at it and they said, you know what? Um, We just wrote that off. I said, what? I owe you a lot of money. I know I do. And we did a lot of extra stuff. They had to do a, ho- a hospital room for us in addition to the birth mom. We stayed an extra day that we you know, weren't intending to stay. And it's like, no, I owe you a lot of money. And they said, yeah, we just, we looked at this. We saw it was an adoption. We saw that the birth mom was on um, med- Medicare. And we, uh, we just decided that we'd just um, write this off. And I sat there and then they, they kind of were like, you can go now. <laughs> like, you're fine, go ahead. And so I sat there for a second in shock, and then I'm walking out, and it still took me a long time to believe, this isn't really true. I'm gonna get a bill any day now. This is how this is gonna work. But to remember in that moment, and to think in that moment, the um, mercy that was shown towards me, that I didn't even ask for that, but it was this overwhelming thing, and it took me a while to actually choose to live into that reality that that had been forgiven. In our gospel text, we see these 10 lepers who approach Jesus for mercy. And in this culture, if you had leprosy, it was like like fingers falling off kind of thing. It was like this really bad skin disease that like ate away at the skin. And you were considered unclean. Like you were cut off from the people of God. You owed a lot, okay, in other words. You're cut off from healing, from forgiveness, from reconciliation with God. So this wasn't just a physical state, it was a social state. Like you were cut off from community if you had leprosy. And Jesus constantly has this way of pointing out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. That the children of Israel knew what it was like to be the ones who were cut off, to be in exile. And yet the leaders continue to do this to their own people. They continue to cut off the sick and the poor and the sinners and the foreigners. Jesus is like, you guys are doing the same thing that was always done to you. It was never in the heart of God. So when Jesus heals lepers and those who were crippled, he doesn't just heal their physical body, even though that's miraculous and life-changing. 
He's calling them back into community and he's calling them back into God's presence. That's what Jesus does. He changes that break that has happened with the community and that break that's happened in their relationship with God. And he says, no, you are restored to that. So they approach Jesus and they ask him for mercy and he responds in an odd way. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. That's all he says. Okay, why? Well, the priest was the one who ultimately decided who was clean and who wasn't clean, who was in and who was out, who had leprosy and who was cured of their leprosy or who was holding their body now. So they're being asked to trust that Jesus has healed them before they've seen the results. Can you, so you can imagine they're sitting there and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And they're going, but my skin still, like, like I'm still cut off. Like, no, why would I do that? And you can imagine the shame that was associated with that. I'm not going to show myself to the priest when you haven't healed me. Can you imagine how embarrassing and how awful that would be? But they're being called to trust that Jesus is who he said he is. They're called to act as if they have been made clean, even though they don't see it yet. And so they went to the priest, and it says, as they went, they were made clean. Now, one of the guys of the 10 is in an odd position because he's not Jewish. He's a Samaritan. Well, he's half Jewish, a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. And he has a different temple, and he has a different priest than the Jews do. So for him, he's going, all right, I'm supposed to show myself to the priest. Do I go to their priest? Do I go to my priest? How does this work? So what does he do? This one guy out of the 10 who's a Samaritan, what does he do? Well, the story says, seeing he was clean, he praised God in a loud voice, and then he goes back to Jesus. So I don't know which priest to go to. I'm gonna go back to Jesus. He recognizes that the hope that he has for ultimate redemption is found not in either priest, but in this guy, Jesus. One way to read this text is about gratefulness. Out of the 10 who were healed, only one said thank you. We work with our children on saying thank you, don't we? And we do that on one level because it's polite. We don't want other people to judge us, right? But on a deeper level, it's because we know that gratitude does something to us that it changes us in some way. It helps us to see life as a gift, that we're not entitled to each day. Every day is a blessing. Every gift is a blessing. So on one level, that's what's going on here. Gratitude has done something in this man. It's transformed him in a powerful way. And he's a Samaritan, he's a foreigner. So Jesus is calling out the Jewish leaders. The nations are able to thank God for this gift, to acknowledge his goodness. But you, the religious folk, have taken it for granted, is what he's saying. What did Jesus tell them to do? Go to the priest. This man doesn't go to the priest, he goes to Jesus. This man, this foreigner, acknowledges that in Jesus, God is up to something new. Jesus is the new high priest. Jesus is the one who decides who's clean and who's unclean. Jesus is the one who decides who's forgiven and who can be in God's presence. And his arms are wide open. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the center of it all. The nations are recognizing the self-giving love of God even when God's own people don't see it. I think we have to be really careful when we are too confident with who the insiders are and who the outsiders are. When we think we have it figured out 
and those people don't have it figured out. We have to be really careful when we think, well, God works in this way, but he doesn't work in that way. There are so many people who are able to see the goodness of God who are the least people that we would expect, the last people that we would expect. There are so many places where God works in our lives that we would go, I would not have thought at all that God would work through that thing that boring thing, that awful thing, that shameful thing. But God did something through that because Jesus is more powerful than any brokenness. Pope Benedict XVI said this, while it's usually the case that anything unclean touching something clean renders it unclean, here in this story, it's the other way around. When the world, with all the injustice and cruelty that makes it unclean, comes into contact with the infinitely pure one, then he, the pure one, is stronger. Through this contact, the filth of the world is truly absorbed, wiped out, and transformed in the pain of infinite love. Because infinite good is now at hand in the man Jesus. The counterweight of all wickedness is present and active within world history. And the good is always infinitely greater than the vast mass of evil, however terrible it may be. My prayer today for us this week is that God would open our eyes to see him in the most unlikely places. God is at work in the painful times, the times where you feel like he's given up on you. God is at work in the boring times. (laughs) And God is at work in the places that seem foreign and odd. St. John of the Cross had this audacious belief. He had this thing that he called the dark night of the soul that he said that all faithful Christians go through in discipleship. And it's this place where you can't feel God at all, where it feels like God doesn't even exist, like you can't feel him at all. And St. John of the Cross had this audacious way of saying, it's actually at that place that God is the most at work. I don't know about you, but that's counterintuitive to me. I'm used to getting goosebumps and then going, ooh, God worked with me. (laughs) But no, it's the places where we can't feel him the most that he's actually doing the deepest work. There is no place that's too dark for Christ. There is nothing too unclean to outweigh his healing touch. And my prayer is that this realization that God is at work everywhere would move us towards gratitude, towards thankfulness. When we're sick, we'd be able to fully acknowledge the pain of sickness, but also recognize God's presence through the community that surrounds us in the midst of sickness. Ooh, God's at work there. When things are tight financially, we can recognize God provided me daily bread today. God is at work here in this. When business is not booming, we can recognize God's work in redirecting our attention away from our obsession with worldly success to things that matter and last. In tragedy, that we be able to fully lament, recognizing how awful and how terrible it is, and yet at the same time, see the helpers who are shining light in the darkness and say, God is at work. My prayer for us that we would see our neighborhood and our situation in a different light. That when you walk out your door, that you wouldn't just see your your neighborhood as a utilitarian place where you get to hang out and found a house that you like. 
but you'd go, God, where are you active? Where are you at work? How can I be part of that? The people who surround us at work or in our neighborhood or in our church are people who are created in the image of God and God is working in them. And this is rooted in hope. We may be here for 70 years in this place we're in, even if it's a difficult place. We may be here for 700 years, but God is working here. Jesus is central here and the word of God is not, is not chained. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you are at work in our midst, whether we can see it or not, whether we can feel it or not, that you are present and you are active. That verse 11 of Jeremiah 29 is true, that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us, that you have a hope and a future. But even now, as we await that, as we await that restoration and that um, completely healed new heavens and new earth, Lord, even now help us to be faithful, to find that you are present in the process, that you are with us, that you are near. I pray for each person here that feels today, whether they think that intellectually or not, that feels today like you've given up on them or that you're distant or far away, that you would open their eyes to see your loving hand at work. I pray in our culture as the church, the mission of the church moves forward, that even as we feel influence waning, as we feel um, church attendance on decline and influence not as strong as it used to be, Lord, that we would find you might be uniquely at work even in that. We trust you and we praise you and thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen.